I want to welcome my guest today, Jim Seffrin, who is the director of Infrospection Institute out of Burlington, New Jersey. He's also a level three thermographer, and he is qualified as an expert witness to testify in court on thermography issues. So, Jim, welcome. Thank you, Lance. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I, I mentioned quickly about you being an expert in court and a level three thermographer. I, I'm a level one thermographer, so I know there's a great difference in knowledge between, you know, the training that I've received and certifications and what you do. But I mean, maybe just to start off, could you explain just the brief difference between the different levels? I know there's one, two, three. Correct. Generally speaking, in the thermographic community, there are three levels of training appropriately labeled one, two, and three. Um, while I can't speak to the levels of other organizations uh, with my company, Infrospection Institute, we define level one thermography as um, the basics of thermography and heat transfer and qualitative infrared inspections, that is thermal imaging. In our level two courses, we, um, we build upon the subject matter that students have learned in level one and then add in accurate non-contact temperature measuring. Uh, in level three, this is about uh, best practices. Um, and in level three, we, we continue to build upon the skill sets that a level two thermographer has uh, gained uh, and uh, teach them how to appropriately manage an infrared inspection program. Even if they manage a program with just one thermographer, uh, we talk about the safety standards, compliance with international standards. Uh, we talk about thermography as legal evidence and the things that thermographers need to be aware of uh, in preparing each and every report, even if they don't intend for it to be used as a piece of evidence in pending litigation. Well, what I'm gonna do at, at this point is I'm gonna jump backwards a little bit. I mean, you explained the difference in the certifications, which clarified it to me because it's been a while since I've gone through that. But for the people that are watching this now, what's the basics? What is thermography? Well, thermography simply defined as the art and science of detecting, displaying, and recording thermal patterns across the surface of an object. Uh, thermal imaging utilizes a special electronic um, instrument called a thermal imager, or some people prefer to say infrared camera. Those terms are used interchangeably by many in the industry. Uh, these cameras are designed to work similar to a video camera. However, what they detect are the normally invisible thermal patterns that are present across the surface of all earthbound objects. So with a thermal imager, we are looking to detect display and document the thermal patterns across various structures, objects, processes, uh, or even people at times. My understanding from when I went through the course and the way I've explained it to people in the past is that uh, regular photography is what the camera sees, visible light. What the thermography system is looking at is heat and it creates an image that you your brain can process. That is correct. Um, we as humans uh, have evolved to see visible light, something we're all familiar with. Infrared behaves similar to visible light and it is given off by all earthbound objects. So it's the heat that's given off or radiated or emitted by an object that the infrared imager sees and then turns into a graphic representation in the form of a video image, which appears on a monitor screen. Depending upon the instrument settings and its sophistication, the imagery that appears on the monitor screen of a thermal imager may be either monochrome or black and white if you prefer, or it may be multicolor wherein the various shades of gray or uh, colors represent the thermal patterns across the surface of that object. 
Uh, I mean, it sounds technical, and I understand what you're talking about, but for people that aren't really familiar with it, how would you do thermography or thermal imaging? Maybe that would explain it a little easier. Sure. Well, thermal imaging, once you know the basics, is relatively straightforward. Uh, if you can operate a video camera, you can probably operate a thermal imager. Uh, the equipment has become extremely user-friendly and uh, far more sophisticated than when I got started nearly 40 years ago. Um, you simply, under the right conditions, point your imager at an object, and the thermal imager produces a real-time image of the thermal patterns across the surface of that object. Uh, the important thing to note is that although thermal imagers operate similar to daylight cameras or daylight video uh, uh, cameras, there are some differences. Uh, for example, thermal imagers will not see through glass or plastics. In fact, they won't see through any solid material. So what you see on television, like uh, programs like uh, NCIS New Orleans comes to mind where law enforcement is routinely pointing a thermal imager at a building and they're seeing the suspects moving around inside. Well, it's clever and entertaining for the TV program. It's wholly inaccurate. No thermal imager sees through solid walls or glass or nominal thicknesses of plastics. So the black helicopters with the thermal imaging cameras can't see into your house from, you know, two miles up? Uh, not to my knowledge, they can't. Okay, okay. Just wanted to clarify that for everybody. So our industry, indoor air quality, which is a big umbrella over mold assessment, mold remediation, flooding, uh, biohazard cleanup, all, all different verticals. How do you see this working? And let's start with the indoor air quality or assessment industry. Well, the thermal imaging, first of all, can be applied to any situation where knowledge of thermal patterns across the surface will provide meaningful data about that system, object, process, or structure. Um, thermal imaging uh, is routinely used in maintenance uh, for inspecting electrical systems to detect hotspots, uh, machinery to detect the defective bearings, um, high temperature applications to detect the defects in refractory or locate underground pipe leaks associated with uh, steam leaks or high temperature hot water. It's used routinely to inspect flat roofs on buildings and also to look at buildings for energy loss. So here in all of these applications, knowledge about a difference in thermal patterns can help point out where there is a problem. Thermal imaging is also used for uh, indoor air quality as a very powerful adjunctive tool where we can use it to assess things, help assess things like airflow or temperature of air being supplied to a living space or occupied space. Now, harking back to something I said earlier, uh, thermal imagers detect thermal patterns across a surface. It's important to note that air does not have a surface. So what we're looking at would, be, would have to be the registers supplying an occupied space or the heating units themselves. So you may look at baseboard uh, heat exchangers or radiators or the air supply registers uh, that are located uh, in occupied space and look for temperature differentials there. Uh, the other place where thermal imaging can be used as part of overall indoor air quality would be to detect evidence of latent moisture associated with wet building materials. This could be drywall, could be acoustic ceiling tiles or carpet. Uh, these things um, readily uh, show up to a thermal imager when wet and the water is actively evaporating. Yeah, you just mentioned a, a moment ago about, you know, air not having a surface, but I've used thermal imaging to look at uh, temperature stacking in a room where that's multiple levels where the air is not really circulating. 
And you can actually see not the air, but you can see its effect on the walls. That is absolutely correct. And I'm okay with a layperson saying that you can see differences in air, but I want I want your viewers to know that there is a there's a subtle difference, but a very important one. And you've pointed that out. So if if a um, if an occupant of a living of an occupied space wanted to refer to we're seeing air temperatures, I'm okay with. I'm not going to not going to correct them on the spot. But for those who are trained, they know that we cannot see different temperatures in the air, but you can see the influence or effects, and that is toward the bottom of the wall. It may be in particularly in the winter months, uh, maybe cooler toward the bottom and then get warmer, a wall surface get warmer, the higher you go within the room. Yeah, it was a pretty powerful photo that I used in some of the training that we do showing stacking because you try to explain it to people, they don't get it because you can't see it till you look at the results of it with thermal imager. And it definitely speaks volumes. So what kind of limitations are there on the thermal imaging equipment, at least that's available now? That's a great question, Lance. Um, where we stand right now in, in uh, 2023, um, with respect to equipment, there has never been a greater variety of thermal imaging systems available to the public. They range from very, very simple. Uh, in fact, uh, for as little as $200, you can buy a module that go onto a smartphone or smart device. And with the software that comes with it, turn your, your smart device, your cell phone, if you will, into a thermal imaging system. Uh, it can range up to hundreds of thousands of dollars for the top of the line systems that do very specialized applications. But between, let's say between the range of $1,000 US and up to $30,000 approximately, there is a wide range of equipment out there uh, that will, um, that will uh, handle applications associated with uh, mold investigation or indoor air quality. Now you will, one will always get what one pays for. Uh, it's particularly true in thermal imaging. You need to choose an imager with sufficient resolution and thermal sensitivity to carry out the task. Um, a, a imager which retails for $1,000 may be adequate for something of large size in close proximity, maybe six, feet of, six to eight feet of imaging distance, but it's not going to be adequate for uh, picking out fine details from the exterior of a building from a couple hundred feet away. I, I remember when I got my first uh, IR camera, uh, and it was, what, 18, 19 years ago. I paid over $13,000 for it. Recently, I had an issue with it, and I called about getting some service, and I was basically told that it's too old. We can't fix it. But if you want to send it in, it would be $2,500 for us to evaluate it. I went and bought another camera for $500 to do a quick job that I had to do. And that's that's very typical of this business. The prices have fallen precipitously over the last 20 years. And meanwhile, the quality of the instrumentation has gone up. But concurrent with that, uh, the, the, um, the falling prices across the board, uh, due to advances in technology, manufacturers have come up with different price points uh, for lesser, lesser quality instruments that are available. So now it's basically pick a price point and there's probably an imager to meet your budget. But... You'll find that for indoor air quality for people who are serious, if you've got between three and $8,000, there is a lot of instrumentation available to you. And I think it's important to know, I don't sell instrumentation. And I will tell you that the um, I teach people how to use it properly and uh, within the limits of the subject equipment. But um, price is also a moving, a, a moving target. Uh, and I, I just give some generalities on giving people an idea for budget. Um, our family of companies have just acquired at least three imagers in the last year. And I think we bought equipment 
that was around 15K by the time we were done because we added additional lenses so that we would have different fields of view with the same instrument. It gives us greater capability. But that's that's probably more horsepower than people need for your average indoor air quality inspection. Well, that was one of the uh, things that I considered when I bought my camera years ago that I was a level one thermographer and I was basically looking at heat patterns on surfaces for mold assessment, mold remediation, indoor air quality issues. But I went for the better camera. It was a few thousand dollars more because if I went further on in the industry into uh, um, temperature measurement for uh, engineering purposes and design and stuff like that, I would have to go out and buy another camera to do that if I didn't get the upgraded one. So I took that into consideration. You know, yeah, I bought the Lamborghini to, gr to drive to the grocery store to get the loaf of bread instead of the Volkswagen. But, you know, at the time, it made more sense to me to do that. Absolutely. And we are faced with a similar thing here within our family of companies um, where we oftentimes are looking not only at what is our most our most immediate needs, but what would could we do additional with this instrumentation? So we tend to buy a level or two above our most basic needs uh, always. I, I got to get into the weeds on a question here that uh, it, it was a big thing a few years, well, quite a few years back where a lot of the cameras that were being produced couldn't be exported out of the United States until the manufacturers made a change in the speed of the cameras. Is that still an issue? Um, let me take apart your, I think it was two questions. So let me, let me take each one in turn. What you're referring to are regulations on the import or export of uh, infrared technology. And what you are at present, Back then and still to this day, if you have an imager with a frame rate of 30 hertz, which is considered real time, you cannot export that or take that instrumentation beyond the borders of the United States without authorization from the US Department of State. If you do, you can wind up in very serious trouble. In fact, it's a, it's a felony. Um, the change that you're referring to is that some manufacturers came out with imagers that had a frame rate of nine hertz. Nine hertz is not considered real time and it is not covered uh, by such restrictions. Those can be exported readily without an export license. Now, the difference between a nine hertz imager and a 30 hertz imager is if I were holding a 30 hertz imager right now and I were to pan it across the wall, um, I'm going to see a real time image with no smearing, no ghost trailing. However, if you have a nine hertz, depending upon how it's put together and um, it's um, processing of signal, as you move quickly, you might get a comet trailer smearing until the imager slows down or or you hold steady. So nine hertz is, there's nothing wrong with a nine hertz imager. Hundreds of thousands of these instruments have been made uh, and used here in the US as well as throughout the world. Uh, but a 30 hertz imager is a, an imager where if you're doing a lot of uh, things in motion or you're walking or you don't want to have to move as slowly as you pan across a wall, then a 30 hertz imager would be for you. So I would, I would caution anybody who has an imager that uh, if you were looking to do any work outside of US, um, the US uh, boundaries, that you make sure that you uh, understand the rules before you take it out or get permission if you have a 30 hertz imager to take it beyond the borders. I guess the, uh, the quick question that people are thinking about is why, and my understanding was because of it could be used as a targeting system for weapons. It's, it has to do with military technology. It's considered a high-end technology, it has military uses. And there've been a couple of instances where people have been 
up to no good have tried to take censors out of, outside of this country and they've gotten they've gotten detained at the borders um, by law enforcement authorities. So I'm always mindful of this because if I'm going to the big house for any reason, it's not going to be for taking an infrared camera across uh, across U.S. Uh, lines. It'll, it'll be for something worthwhile, I promise you. I actually got stopped once um, going through uh, TSA security with a camera. Um, they saw the case. It looked like a handgun case. They wanted to search it. They opened it. They searched it. They wanted to swab it, you know, with uh, gunpowder residue detection stuff. And it was fine. They had no idea what it was. You know, I had to explain it to them, but it was only once I had an issue with that. I suspect that's probably some time ago because so many people are carrying imagers through uh, onto airplanes. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be taking two or three next week for a class I'm teaching. I'm going to Kansas City for an on-site class and I'll have two or three in a duffel bag. And uh, I, I think the TSA people nowadays have probably seen an imager at least one, once a shift. I, I can't imagine that uh, it's, it's all that far into them. But to, for those who do travel, uh, it's always a good idea to have um, a battery uh, with your imager if you're, if you're uh, boarding a plane and uh, taking this as a carry-on so that in case you are asked to fire it up and prove that it really is a thermal imager, you can do so. Interesting. I always had the batteries with it, but just never for that reason. But good point. All right. So in my world, indoor air quality and mold assessment remediation, we have standards of practice, professional practices. Are there current accepted standards for thermal imaging? The answer to that question is yes, there are. There are many, actually. Um, our My company, Infrospection Institute, actually uh, publishes uh, perhaps the largest inventory of applications and equipment usage standards uh, pertaining to thermography. Um, we have standards related to infrared inspections of electrical systems, mechanical systems, building envelopes, um, flat roofing systems, uh, boats and recreational yachts, horses, photovoltaic systems, uh, just to name a few. We also publish standards on proper use of the thermal imager and uh, all of these standards are taught in our courses. Those standards are also available for purchase by uh, lay people or people with an interest in thermal imaging, and they can be um, accessed through the Infrospection Institute uh, website through our online store. They're available for um, immediate download. Uh, very reasonably priced, I might add. I say that because I'm a practicing thermographer and I've seen uh, standards published by ISO and other international entities that retail for as much as uh, two to $300 each. Ours are nowhere near that in price. Weren't you at one point involved with writing some of the standards? I've been a co-author of most of the standards that are in place. Uh, I'm responsible for the content of the uh, 13 or so that Infrospection publishes. Uh, I also am a member of ASTM International and have been since 1985 and have helped to uh, co-author the standards uh, that are published by ASTM. Uh, those standards are later adopted uh, by ISO and have also worked with the Roof Consultants Institute. Uh, to name a few. In um, some of the classes that I'm involved with teaching on the remediation and assessment side, I, I talk about thermography and the importance that it can play in the assessment inspection process and repair, making sure you got all the problems. But one of, one of the issues or questions I get all the time, what should I buy? And to your point from earlier, you know, there's different pieces of equipment you can buy for different things you're going to be doing. But I always tell people, get trained in thermography first, learn about it before you go out and buy it. You know, it's, it's kind of like saying you, you want to go buy a car, but you've never driven one. Right. 
Uh, I couldn't agree more with your your advice that you're you're offering. Uh, I use a similar analogy. I say buying an imager with no training or understanding of the technology is like sending your four year old to buy the family car. Uh, they they may only know the basics, and it's not enough. There are subtle differences that are key differences in the performance, and it's um, far too easy to make a purchasing mistake if you buy before you understand what you're doing. My best advice to anyone who is looking to um, join the ranks of uh, thermographers is to get your training first from an unbiased source. And then when you see the different applications, it may change your mind about uh, what instrumentation that you are going to buy, or you may see other business opportunities uh, with respect to infrared inspections that will dovetail nicely with your existing business that would um, lead you to buy a different piece of equipment. Uh, my best advice is do not rely solely, if, you, if you're not experienced, do not rely solely upon web advertising or web pages. Um, the infrared business is unlike many others in that uh, many companies practice image substitution in their print literature and especially on their websites. That is, they'll take the imagery from their highest quality thermal imager and put it onto a web page for a much lesser capable imager. So it's like it's like getting a um, it's like going into a car dealership and ordering a Corvette. And uh, when you arrive to take delivery, you find, uh, if you're all have to remember them, a Chevette in its place. And you say, wait a minute, that's not what I ordered. I said, well, come on, they're both vets. I mean, they're, they're both modes of transportation. There's, there's photographs in the literature we shared with you are just for illustrative purposes. So um, here in the, uh, in the infrared business, and I, I mean this in all seriousness, image substitution is a, is a widely practiced um, um, advertising technique. And it's one that uh, seasoned thermographers like myself, we, we, we look at that imagery and go, that's nice, but I want a pre-purchase demo or be able to take it for a test drive first. So while you were explaining all that, I was just thinking about, you know, people not understanding the technology. And I remember being out on an assessment and the homeowner was following me around and watching me look with the camera and things. And I still remember them saying, is that a ghost? There was a tile wall and it was catching a reflection and it was bouncing back the, the heat pattern. And I said, no, it's not. But that it's making me think about the Ghostbusters uh tv show that was on where they were using thermal imaging cameras yeah and to your point thermal imaging is often portrayed in the mass media but frequently it's it's misrepresented um my wife is a big fan of ncis new orleans so i don't want to be i don't want to be smart her favorite tv program while she's not around but ncis new orleans is a program where i've noted that there's multiple uses of thermal imaging which are incorrect but we see other type, other forms of entertainment, uh, ghost hunting programs where thermal imaging is used to find spirits. Uh, the topic of UFOs is another. Uh, now, train, and we touch on this, by the way, in our level one course. Uh, and the reason I touch on it is because many lay people have been exposed to this and they come away with false impressions of what thermal imaging can or cannot do. And I advise our students and I would advise your members the same that are using thermal imaging is when somebody's wrong in their assessment or understanding, just be patient with them. Chances are they've just been misinformed and they've, they've seen it misrepresented on TV. Um, but I, I point out in our level one courses that don't believe everything you say because inaccuracies abound. Uh, another, another good example, I uh, was giving a level one class not so long ago and uh, I mentioned this on a Monday as part of our day one uh, course content. And Tuesday morning, um, one of my students comes in, he has a bottle of Snapple and uh, he says, I want to share something with you. 
And he takes the cap off and underneath is a Snapple fact, which I had no idea existed until I saw this one. And the Snapple fact stated that polar bears have, are covered with fur that renders them invisible to thermal imagers. And I found that interesting because it's 180 degrees from the truth. The US Fish and Wildlife Service actually uses thermal imagers from airborne platforms to do census counts of polar bears. And uh, in doing a little more research, I found out that it, there's somewhere on the order of a thousand Snapple facts available to the, to the public at large, but there are many things that are incorrect, including the one about polar bear hair. Well, there's something we didn't expect to learn today. Speaking of learning, Bonus. Yeah, bonus. Tell us about the Institute, Infrospection Institute. Sure. Um, Infrospection Institute, my company, has uh, been in business since 1980. And as such, we are the oldest infrared training and certification firm in the world. Uh, Infrospection Institute provides training, uh, certification, and support for infrared thermographers from around the globe. Uh, we do not sell uh, or take commissions on the sale of infrared equipment. Uh, so it puts us in a very unique position in that we are offer unbiased training. Uh, we are not uh, manufacturer neutral. We're manufacturer or vendor independent. We stay completely above that. We also are recognized as a uh, as an authority authoritative body in the business in that we have written or co-authored many of the standards that are in place for the conduct of infrared inspections for infrared equipment use. Uh, I, like I mentioned earlier, you're here in New Jersey, where I'm located, uh, you know, southern part of the state. But if somebody wanted to take a course with you, can they do them online? Absolutely. Um, we offer training all across the country and for that matter, throughout the world. We actually have a network of course materials licensees who are authorized to teach our courses. And at present, we have representation on six of the seven continents. We just have not found anyone in Antarctica yet that is ready to uh, set up uh, and offer training there. But uh, we have uh, live instructor-led training available on six of the seven continents. And we also have the world's most comprehensive inventory of distance learning courses for thermography. Those courses are professionally produced and uh, they are available as uh, recordings, meaning that they're available to a student 24 seven and a student can go back during their subscription period for training, can go back and see those recordings as many times as they like. So um, it allows students to take their training wherever and whenever it's convenient for them. Well, in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to uh, give us some information about where people could reach out to your school or you for more information about training and anything else. But before that, it, it just popped into my head. And I don't want to forget about it. I remember talking to you years ago. And you telling me about being called out to find the mysterious lights over the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> Actually, you're, you're, I, I appreciate that recollection, uh, but I, I'm going to make a little bit of a correction there. Um, I got a call from the National Geographic Society regarding a videotape that had been offered by um, someone in Mexico as proof that UFOs were visiting and operating over the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, the proof was a videotape that had been recorded by a combat aircraft uh, flown by the uh, Mexican Air Force. They were out on a training mission and they were over the Bay of Campeche, which is in the Southeast uh, quadrant of the Gulf of Mexico. And during their flight, the, they noticed a group of hotspots that seemed to be shadowing them and flying in 
and this air quotes here, flying in formation and shadowing these combat aircraft. And they were discussing it back and forth. So the language was quite colorful as, as sometimes military personnel are, are, uh, are in their, their speech. Uh, but that aside, this um, videotape ultimately wound up in the hands of a UFO investigator uh, who had offered this as proof that UFOs were operating over the Bay of Campeche. So the National Geographic Society had gotten wind of this and were putting together a documentary about UFOs, and they were looking for an expert to comment on it, and they had com uh, contacted me. Now, they originally had gone out and tried to get a thermal imager and fly the same area, but they were in a pressurized aircraft, and Thermal images won't see through glass or plastic, so they couldn't see out of the window. So after a fail that was costly for them, they decided to, to get someone else to come in and work with them, and we offered to do so. And um, after reviewing that videotape, uh, we came up with an alternate theory of the, the source of the, the um, hotspots uh, in the video, and that was that these hotspots uh, were more likely caused by the presence of oil and gas exploration platforms operating in the Cantarell oil fields, which is in the Bay of Campeche. Uh, these platforms uh, have a flare stack, which is a, uh, a large tower, which is used to burn off waste gases. And these flares run up to 100 feet in height or more from the tip of the, the nozzle where they are burned off. And uh, this creates a large hotspot when, uh, when viewed with a thermal imager. Um, the interesting thing about the hotspots was there was a big hotspot in the video, each one, and then have a much smaller, fainter one beneath it. And um, the thermal imagery dovetailed and correlated perfectly with the heat given off by a flare stack and the reflection of that same flare off the seawater and uh, the, the surface of the, uh, the uh, seawater in the Gulf of Mexico. The idea that the group of uh, UFOs were following the Mexican uh, Air Force aircraft uh, was really an optical illusion. Without a point of reference, um, you lose perspective and it gives the impression or the illusion something is following you. Uh, the, the analogy I use when I, when I talk about this in our classes uh, in, in the introductory part of, of um, thermography, um, the analogy I use, the experience I have firsthand is when I was, when I was young, it's a long time ago, um, when I was young, I'd go out in the yard at night and on, on a clear night, and the moon was out bright, I'd walk across the yard and get this sensation that the moon was following me. It's like I had my own private moon. Everywhere I went, the moon followed along. Similarly, without a point of reference, you can't know that it's not following you. Your, your, your mind gets tricked without that point of reference. So it's the same thing here. But that's uh, that was the, the story of the UFOs. And uh, I'm not saying UFOs don't exist. In fact, I think it's interesting that in the last week, our military has finally admitted admitting to shooting down unidentified flying objects. It's been on TV. Uh, they just aren't, uh, they, they, I don't think that those aircraft that were shot down, however, uh, were uh, extraterrestrials. I, I, they seem more like balloons to me. Well, from back in the uh, 40s from Roswell, uh, everything was just called a weather balloon. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, no, what you're referring to is uh, the recent uh, balloon from China that was shot down and then three additional ones that were found in different parts of the world. But that's for another discussion, another day. But I think the, the key here is training, training, training. You know, the pilots were trained to a point, but probably didn't understand enough of thermography to be able to distinguish what they were seeing and what it really was. 
I um I, I would agree with you. Uh, they did not go in pursuit of said UFOs, um, uh, but rather continued on with their mission. As they say, it's really a very small video clip that was purported to be proof that UFOs existed, but in fact did not. And it's things like this that we 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 caution our students. You know, be aware that these things are on YouTube. They're they're in the public domain. They're on television. They're in print. They're under Snapple bottle caps. These these misrepresentations. Um, and you just need to be aware of it and uh, and uh, anticipate that others may have mis uh, mistaken notions about thermal imaging. But to that end, the the greatest limiting factor in any infrared inspection for any application is not the equipment. We've touched a little bit on equipment. The greatest limiting factor is the operator and what he or she knows. Uh, one of the things that's most important is, in addition to using the right equipment, it's understanding infrared theory and heat transfer, uh, understanding the system or object or structure that you're inspecting, how it's put together and how it's interacting with its environment, and also being able to anticipate what type of thermal pattern is going to be indicative of a defect or an unwanted condition that you're there to detect. So all of that, it should be part of one's training and also experience plays a part in this. Um, but with proper training, uh, a person should be able to go out and uh, with their understanding of structures or electrical or mechanical systems or any other system that's being inspected, be able to apply that in a meaningful way. You know, you, you mentioned something when you were talking about the uh, pilots not going after or in pursuit of the lights that they saw. If we take that into the indoor air quality mold assessment arena, it's like looking at a wall and seeing a heat pattern or cold pattern, depending on how you want to look at it, and not verifying that it is a problem with like a moisture meter going that next step to validate what you're seeing. That's absolutely correct. In fact, one of the things that I stress in my class is that is that infrared by itself is not a standalone technology. Almost always at a bare minimum, we are correlating what we see on the screen with our eyes doing a, cr a cross-reference visually. Now, step beyond that, which is oftentimes required, would be the use of uh, moisture meters, whether it be invasive or capacitance type moisture meters. There's always additional, additional um, confirmation that's necessary. Uh, you cannot know that a certain pattern is caused by the presence of moisture or an air leak until or, or missing or misapplied insulation until you've verified it with the next level of verification. And with indoor air quality, most, most often it's first visual and then touch. Sometimes it's touch. You reach down, touch the carpet, and it's wet. Or it could be just that simple or then moving on to moisture meter or in some cases, physical disassembly of a structure, a wall structure to look at what's inside or even using a borescope. That's, that's a lot less invasive, but that's a possibility as well. I mean, it could even be as simple as just a uh, a nest from a squirrel inside of a wall or mice or something just generating heat on that surface. Yeah. Or under cold weather conditions, if the squirrels have squirrels or rodents have removed the insulation, it's, it's misapplied insulation. That, that's a possibility. Uh, we have seen in some cases where insects, uh, in particular uh, termites, uh, can bring enough moisture back to the nest to create a cold spot on, on, a, on a wall. And you look at that and yes, it's moisture causing it, but it's not because of a leak, it's because you have an insect infestation. And uh, that is also a um, possibility for detection with a thermal imager under the right conditions. So because of the specialty way that you get information or specific way that you get information back from the thermal imager, it changes some of the legal requirements, I think, 
or liability requirements on the assessor. I mean, we work normally under what we consider within view. You know, if you can look at it and see it, okay, that's what you're really liable for making assessments on. But this gives a little bit extra, but you're really not seeing through walls. I mean, you're, you're still looking at the surface that you can see. That, so does that change the requirements or the legality of your assessment or your liability? Um, we, we suggest to our students and through the standards that uh, thermal imaging is a visual inspection, albeit a different wavelength of light, it's a, it's a visual type of inspection performed at a specific point in time. Uh, what we see today doesn't mean that that's what we'll be seeing tomorrow. Uh, so if you stick to your square of expertise and follow the standards, um, it is an inspection at a given point in time. Um, we do not suggest that people offer um, opinions be, beyond the scope of thermography unless they are so qualified. Uh, and they also should not misrepresent what they, the, the imager and the imaging system is capable of. So we're not going to see into a wall. Uh, a good example is thermal imager does not detect mold. Now, I've seen many people offer that verbally. I've seen it written on websites and, to the, uh, and I've seen others allude to it. But thermal imagers do not detect mold. Rather, they detect thermal patterns across the surface. Uh, one of the things that can create a detectable temperature differential would be the presence of moisture. And when building materials become wet for a prolonged period of time, we all know that they can be conducive to mold growth. So unwanted moisture in building materials uh, goes hand in hand with the presence of mold, but that doesn't mean we've detected mold. The confirmation for, uh, of the presence of mold requires uh, other tests which are beyond thermography. So as far as the legality, I think that if one sticks to the square of expertise, and we're very clear about this in, in our, the courses that we teach, is tell them what you know. I see a thermal pattern that is typical of latent moisture in the exterior wall. Visual, visual observation noted a discolored stain in the latex paint in the same shape. Um, carpet was wet to touch. That's fine. Uh, moisture meter indicated presence of moisture. That's fine. But just tell them what you know. Uh, I never offer opinions beyond uh, beyond the scope of what I am doing in, in thermal imaging uh, if I'm actively doing an inspection. So I don't say that you have mold without there, there being a test for it. I think you have wet building material, you have wet wall, wet ceiling tile, uh, wet, um, wet carpet. You should have that investigated as, as to the cause. In fact, the universal recommendation that we offer to our students is this, investigate cause of thermal anomaly, take appropriate corrective action. That's all you ever need to say. And if you, if you say that and nothing more, no one, I don't see where there's any legal, legal uh, pitfall for you. Interesting. So with that, other verticals as far as, um, I know we deal with a lot of home inspectors, electrical inspectors, health inspectors. I mean, is there a place for thermal imaging in there? Absolutely. Um, when you get into larger properties and beyond the single family home, you get into multifamily units. We have electrical systems, which are sizable. Those are candidates for infrared inspection. Uh, and many sizable multifamily units. Uh, we have the uh, roof. Oftentimes it's low slope, or if you prefer to say it's flat, uh, that is a candidate for infrared inspection. Uh, with greater interest in energy awareness and energy conservation, 
uh, infrared inspections as part of a uh, building energy audit conducted either from outdoors or from indoors uh, to detect evidence of uh, excess heat loss or air infiltration or air exfiltration if you're on the outside. And of course, always uh, latent moisture in building sidewalls. Uh, latent moisture for the mold investigator and mold remediator, we typically are concerned with indoors, you know, inside the building, but there are places where we can have latent moisture in the building structure, which is undesirable, uh, but it may not be creating a mold issue on the inside. Uh, a case in point is in our home state of New Jersey and the surrounding states, uh, EFIS or EFS, as some people prefer to pronounce it, uh, is in, um, so, uh, also known by the trade name Drive It, is in is a building material which uses acrylic stucco uh, that allows a builder to create stone or uh, masonry uh, facade uh, appeal uh, appearances uh, using uh, very inexpensive building materials. This material is notorious for developing leaks over time, and when water gets trapped in an EFIS clad uh, system, an EFIS clad building. Uh, the moisture does not dry out between storms. And if it is over a wooden substrate, it can create all kinds of uh, problems in uh, causing the substrate to be com become compromised, wet itself. Of course, we can be attractive to insect pests due to the moisture. can be conducive to mold growth, but it can also cause significant structural damage. You know, we, we've dealt with that uh, quite a bit, and we deal with that all through the South, too. There's a lot of homes being constructed that way also. So, yeah, very prevalent. All right. One of the, I'm just going to okay. say one other thing on the verticals. Uh, we're talking about energy loss. Another another one uh, that thermal imaging really excels at, as far as um, energy conservation, is on IGU windows. IGU, also known as thermopane or, or double glazed windows, uh, particularly in commercial structures or even multifamily structures, when these um, windows become compromised with age, that is, they lose their uh, air seal. Uh, between the panes. So many times it's filled with argon, but sometimes it's just dry air. When that seal is compromised, moist air gets in from the environment and contaminates the space between. And under the right conditions, when you look at these windows, if they have failed and are contaminated with moist uh, environmental air, um, you will see with a thermal imager what we call a bullseye signature, either hot or cold bullseye in the dead center of the window. And that indicates that window has failed. Uh, I've recently been involved with a large pharmaceutical here in the state of New Jersey, where they are renovating their properties on a regular basis. And um, we were inspecting for them annually from the exterior of the building under energy loss conditions to uh, detect excess energy loss, either in air leakage or missing or damaged insulation. And we found uh, in the first year, a certain number of windows, getting about 20 years in age, exhibited this bullseye pattern indicating they're failed. Next year, far more. The third year, almost every window exhibited that. So they went through and uh, replaced all those windows as part of a major renovation. We came back as part of a QA and most of the windows looked good, except for the inspection I was on. Three of them right out of the box were failed. And uh, on our web, you'll find the imagery on our websites uh, showing this uh, big bullseye signature indicating a failed window right out of the box. Lance, I've lost your voice. I'm sorry. You can't see the uh, window that I have here in the office, but there's a slight crack in it and the bullseye is there. So okay. yeah, that does happen. Um, could you tell our viewers where to find you? Yes, um, you can find us online at our website, which is www.infraspection, I-N-F-R-A, 
S-P-E-C-T-I-O-N.com. Uh, there you'll find uh, information about our company and our, our, our um, courses that we offer both in person and online. You'll also find information about all of the standards that we publish. We also have a second website, which is uh, unlike Infrospection, which is a catalog site, talks specifically about Infrospection. We have an online uh, thermographic community website. This is a content-based website called irinfo.org. There you will find a number of resources, including directories of thermographers, which I would invite your members to uh, get their company listed if they haven't already uh, done so. There's no charge for that. Uh, we also have a number of technical articles published there, uh, somewhere around, um, I mean, so there's over 200 technical articles and about 300 tips of the week, which are short essays pertaining to thermography. So all of these things, these resources are free. And I would invite your uh, your colleagues and uh, viewers to um, tune into our online frequencies, uh, infrospection.com and irinfo.org for more information. Of course, um, we are a, a real company staffed by real people. So if anyone has a question, uh, they're welcome to just pick up the phone and simply give us a call and you'll find our telephone numbers listed on our website. You mean somebody you really can talk to? Yes. Isn't that, isn't that novel? I find... It uh, seems to be getting more and more novel these days, but it's something I insist upon. It's uh, perhaps it's perhaps born out of habit, maybe a little bit with a touch of gray I sport these days. But it's something I insist upon. We're we're in a people business, and uh, uh, personal interaction is extremely important. Jim, I thank you for spending the time with us today. I uh, really appreciate it, and uh, maybe we'll do this again. I, I know I want to talk to you more about search and rescue and a few other uh, uses for the thermal imaging. So look sure. forward to doing that. Lance, I, I would welcome the opportunity anytime. Thank you for letting us uh, share with you and uh, uh, have a nice day. You too.